she made her way into the room. It once was filled with people that she called family. The room wasn't full that night, and the joy she once had seemed a distant past. She was a little anxious as she walked in that room, hanging on to the arm of her dear father, and she realized quickly that the emotions that she was feeling were very different than his. She was a flittering, and, and her emotions were all a jumbled, and he seemed so calm. Things had really gotten confusing for this young woman as she wrestled with the things that were most dear to her. She wasn't sure what she believed. She wasn't sure what to think. Those who had left, left with these leaders that were so sure, so confident, so persuasive as they talked about getting more out of life, getting more from life. They, they talked about deeper knowledge. They talked about experiences that made me wonder, she thought, if I was missing out, if what I had heard all these years was, was actually true. Her father tried to convince her that the things that had recently happened were just as their founding leader had said. Wolves will come in from among you and they will lead many astray. She wasn't so sure. And so when word got out that a letter had come from the beloved John, she knew she had to get to church that day. But it wasn't the same as she walked in that day. They sang a song. Her mind was distracted, her emotions flittering here and there. And then after the song, she was focused as one of the older men of the church, an elder, took up the parchment and in the candlelit room began to read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. I wonder as you're listening in this room or up north, classic service, if you've ever been at that place where you find yourself wondering if you've missed out on something, a deeper something in relationship to your walk with God. I remember so well, I was 16, my parents had put me on a plane and sent me to Switzerland to spend the summer by myself with my relatives learning French and working in the family's general store, my dad's cousin. I had a lot of time in the evenings. 
And I have some books. And I remember one of the books was written by an entertainer, a singer, Pat Boone. And he wrote about his Christian experience and how he came to faith in Christ. But he wrote about something more, about a second experience, being baptized by the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And as I read, my eyes grew wider and he talked about experiences and joy. And, and I, I, I was longing for that and realizing at the same time I was a bit conflicted because I never had that. And I remember saying, God, would you do that for me? Because I'd sure like to have that experience. It never happened. You ever find yourself wondering if there's something more to life, even to your spiritual life? A pastor wrote this excellent article to which I'll read excerpts. Most Christians I meet feel stuck. They started a journey, but somewhere, somehow got stranded. They feel like they're living on the border. There they sit, swapping rumors about God. Or they just stop talking about God at all. They can talk about everything else with ease and eloquence, but their tongues thicken, twist, grow mute about naming and proclaiming God. And this, they feel that the most their faith amounts to, is just that, mere talk. They've joined a talking cult. Where is the huge, exultant freedom from which Christ sets us free? Why do I still fret over downturns in Asian markets, get irked by reckless, dotering drivers, harbor grudges over petty slights, care more about my rhododendron brush than about the soul of the boy who broke its branches playing street hockey? Why can I sustain a capacity to explore in my mind vast tracts of an imaginary world, but can barely focus my prayers on God for more than 30 seconds at a go. The most wondrous, breathtaking truth I've ever contemplated is the story of the triune God and his ways with humanity, with me. But a fly tapping on the window can distract me from this story. Ten minutes of my morning set aside for appropriating the story's meaning into my life seems a sacrifice and sometimes just a nuisance. As a pastor, I see and hear all the time those who want to have a deeper, richer experience with Christ, but they find themselves instead whiling away their days. Their days pass in a blurring swiftness in that they drag on in a dreary sameness in jobs they dislike, in relationships that baffle and hurt them, with financial worries and health problems. They don't feel fulfilled. And they carry a secret dread. Is there more? And I'm the only one missing it? Or worse, is this it? And everyone's pretending it's enough. So where are you at today? Longing for more? Wondering if you're experiencing all that you ought? Are you unclear about the life of faith? 
what it looks like, what it feels like, what is true, true faith, true spirituality. And is all the uncertainty in any way making you unsure about your standing before God? As we begin our study in 1 John, and if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn there. We're going to be hanging out in this wonderful short letter for the next seven weeks. We're going to get a 360 on true spirituality, true faith. A 360 because this book is like very few other books in the Bible. It's like we keep turning around on this circular staircase. And as we go up and up, we continue to see the same things in the room, the same themes. We just have different vantage points of them. Themes like, who is Jesus? What does it mean to have a relationship, to walk with Jesus? What it means to love like Jesus. And as we move through the book, we will be encouraged. There's going to be some tough stuff that starts tearing away at the constructs and the superficial notions that we often carry in to our concept of what is spiritual life, true spirituality. What does it be, mean to be a true spiritual person, woman, man, young student? John tells us why he wrote the letter. In chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And that's the goal of this letter, to make us sure of what is ours in Christ, not just for the future. Eternal life is something that we get today. Eternal life is all about Jesus and so John's going to throw some hand grenades. So I told you, if you got my note, I was uh, in a class this week on the book of Job. Man, this prof was throwing hand grenades. Hand grenades that blow up some of our assumptions, some of our simple constructs. He's going to move us away from these ideas that spirituality is a very mystical thing. That spirituality has to do with these religious practices and rituals that we often attach to the subject. He's going to move us away from the idea that our faith in God is simply personal and private. And he's going to push us and say, it may be personal, it may be private, but it gets worked out corporately and it shows up at the street level. It is very public. I love how Michael Horton puts it. True spirituality may be personal, but it's not private. It's wildly, unashamedly, thoroughly public. All right, so this message is a little different because we need to set up the book or we're going to get lost. We need to, to get our bearings in the book. So let's just do a little bit of that before we launch into chapter one. So let's understand who the author is. And the interesting thing about 1 John, and you just heard me read the opening verses, is there's no mention of an author 
or an audience, like you have in almost all the other letters except for Hebrews. Hebrews is the only other letter that doesn't give us an author. But scholars are pretty much in agreement. This is written by the disciple named John, Jesus' closest friend. Remember the one that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, John, take care of my mom. Behold your mom, your mother. Take care of my mom, his closest friend. Now, why do they believe that? Well, there's some church history that backs that up. But more importantly, as you read through the letter and compare it to the gospel, you find out, wow, the language is so similar. The theme's so similar. So written by John at the end of his life, later, maybe almost 50 years later after Jesus' death, the recipients were not sure, but we know from Acts chapter 19 that John has disciples who live in a city named Ephesus, and it's very likely after Paul founded the church that John pastored the church. It's very likely this is a letter that was a circular letter, kind of like one of our chain letters. It went to a lot of different churches, hence it didn't have a specific audience or city or church stated there at the beginning. Here's what we know about the church. Chapter 2, verse 19, there was a split. The split was over false teachers. And their false teaching began with the person of Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Savior. They denied specifically his humanity, the incarnation, that Jesus took on human flesh. Chapter 4, verse 2 speaks of that. They actually had this construct that divided Jesus Christ into two persons. There was Jesus. He's this guy from Nazareth. He was a good guy. He was a godly guy. He's a religious guy. And then there was Christ. He was divine. And Jesus, at his baptism, receives the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, the two come together at that point. But before he's crucified on the cross, the divine Jesus is up in heaven. And it only seems like he had a body. But he really didn't. They deny the humanity of Christ, and we'll get to why they would do that. The false teachers had a trump card, and the trump card was, well, yeah, Jesus is great, but, but we've got something more. We, we've got deeper knowledge, something new, something fresh. It was not connected at all with the revelation of Scripture that was around in that day. In fact, one of the leaders that was known to those parts, a guy named Serenthus from Egypt, was a man who, though he holded the Old Testament, basically throughout the New Testament writings, and all he held on to was a little bit of Mark and a little bit of Matthew. None of John's gospel, none of Paul's writings. And their false teaching led to some unethical behavior and some wild claims that actually they'd achieved moral perfection, no sin. And so this letter is a warning, and it's an encouragement. It's a warning to this notion that Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus something more. This anointing that he's going to talk about, this this mystical, deeper knowledge is going to raise you up to this whole nother level of spirituality where you don't even ever sit anymore. You need Jesus plus. 
And we always remember that when we get in that construct, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And on the flip side, Jesus plus nothing is everything. And that's where John's going. Take him back to that. Now, why did they throw out the humanity of Christ? I mean, if you look at all the world religions today, that's one of the predominant views of Jesus. Not God, but a good man. Why do these guys hold on to his deity, but throw out his humanity? Why would one do that? Well, because that notion of God becoming man, taking on human flesh, totally blew their paradigm. They couldn't put it together. It's like what's going to happen to me when I watch a Bears-Packer game and Julius Peppers is lined up in green and gold. It's going to blow my paradigm. What was their paradigm? Their paradigm was dualism, where good and evil are independent and equal forces. There's a God, there's a devil. There's good, there's evil. There's demons, there's angels. There's the physical world, bad. There's the spiritual world, good. So Jesus, the gospel says, becomes a man. He takes on human flesh. He's born a baby. He walks. He eats. He's crucified to a cross. They're going, ah, you can't have God who is good mixed with evil. You can't do that. Blew their framework. They couldn't receive the truth. That's something that we wrestle with too. So as my old friend and mentor Dick Lucas, a great pastor from London, used to teach us pastors, he would say, guys, you need to have a big T for the text, a little F for the framework. We all have a framework. Make sure it doesn't dominate the word of God. Their framework dominated God's word so that they could not receive it. Now, that background is going to be incredibly helpful as we jump into the text and read again verses 1 and 2. And all of a sudden we go, oh, that's why he's talking using all this sensory language. Look at verse 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, speaking of Christ's eternal nature, which we have heard right? Hearing, which we have seen, seeing our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So, his starting point is so great. It's so great as he's trying to just shore them up, encourage them, and instruct them on what true faith and true spirituality looks like. So instructive for us. Where does he start? He starts with who? Jesus. He starts with Jesus. Man, that, that ought to just... You, you have conversations with friends about a lot of different things. You, you, you just start... Get that conversation to Jesus. It just sorts things out in a hurry. He starts with Jesus, who he is. He's God. 
He's that which was from the beginning. He's been with the Father, and he is man. And I love how John, just like in his gospel, uses poetry and metaphor instead of straight prose. He could have said, Jesus is the Son of God. And at the same time, fully man. You need to remember that, class. You didn't didn't do that. He uses all these beautiful metaphors that Jesus is the word of life or the word that gives life. He is life. He's eternal life. These are the same images that John uses in his gospel. So just look up on the screen, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is called the Word of God. He's the Word that was there in the beginning, and all things came into being through Him. Without Him, nothing would exist, he goes on to say in verse 2. And what a beautiful metaphor that Jesus communicates most perfectly to us what God is like. He's communicated who, he's, who he is like in nature. He has communicated who he is like through the prophets and the writings in various ways. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, he has communicated perfectly through his son, who is the exact representation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the word. He's fully God. He's eternal. That which was from the beginning. He's even called eternal life, right? Verse 2. With the Father. But he's also one who appeared. And when he appeared, he wasn't Casper the ghost. They heard him. They saw him. They looked at him. They touched him. John was there. The night when Jesus slipped through the wall into the upper room on that Easter Sunday. And Jesus says, go ahead and touch me. Same thing. Same word. And John says, I remember it. I put my hands right there. A nail print in his palm. In verse 14 of John's gospel, he also mentions the incarnation The word became flesh. Jesus became a human being and made his dwelling among us. That's the same word for tabernacle in the Old Testament. That God's presence is no longer associated with a place but a person. It's in Jesus. We've seen his glory, John writes. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says, okay class, here here we go. First point, you want to know if you have true spirituality? Then what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he's God's son? Do you believe that he came in the flesh and lived here and died here on the cross? That's the starting point. And so most of us, as we're listening today, we're going, hey, I'm good, right? I believe that. And John would say, good start, an important start. By the way, you throw out the incarnation as humanity. You throw out the work of Christ. You throw out the work of Christ. There is no hope for us. Our hope is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life, died as a substitute on the cross for our guilt, for our sin. It's a huge, it's a good start. But John says, 
It's just a start. And here's why. Because the revelation of God always has the goal of relationship with God. The revelation of God, His Word, always has as its goal relationship. We sometimes think information. Information. Information that leads to relationship. Relationship. That's the goal. So we're walking down State Street, right? You and me. We're heading down to the mall. We're right about at Ian's. And I look across the street and I say, hey, how's your relationship with that person? You say, what person? The guy right over there. He's kind of walking down the street with the guitar. You see him? Yeah, I see him. How's your relationship with him? Well, I, I don't have a relationship with him. Well, why, why not? What's wrong with you? I have no idea who this person is. I've never seen this person before. How can I have a relationship with someone I don't know? And this is where John goes. Look at verse 3. In verse 3 he says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. He's talking about Jesus. That's the, the centerpiece of his message. So that. Here's the reason. So that. You also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. I'm proclaiming these things about Jesus so that you'll have a relationship with us. A close, mutual relationship, fellowship. And if you have it with us, by the way, you have it with the Father and the Son. He, he's saying that very thing. The purpose of revelation is a relationship. And this is good news. But this is where things start to crumble as we begin to sort out where we're at in this whole matter of spirituality. This is really good news. He points us to a person, Jesus Christ, and to a relationship with him, not a bunch of things we do for Jesus. Here's your checklist. You believe in that, God? Well, here's what you need to do. Ah, oh, it's so great that he crumbles up the checklist and he says, walk with him. Have a relationship. Keep reading. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So, repeated words. Fellowship, close Mutual relationship, a partnership, walking this beautiful image of doing life with God. Doesn't it remind us of in, in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God and then he disappeared. He lived such a beautiful life with God that in the list of everybody else who's dying in chapter 5, not Enoch, he walked with God. And he walked one day from this world to the next. So then the question is, so what does that look like? Well, what does this close, mutual relationship look like? What, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? 
Well, he, he tells us walking with God is walking in the light because God is light. And if we're walking in the light, then if we're walking with God, then we're walking in the light. God is light and his son Jesus is light. Remember, he says, I'm the light of the world, John 8. And so walking in a relationship with God is all about, he's going to talk about two things here. He's going to talk about obedience and he's going to talk about walking in truth that flows out of our own humility. So here's where things get dicey. Because John, and he's going to do this about 36 times, he's going to do these kind of absolute constructs that no way you could be in the middle of them. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. You're a child of the Father or you're a child of Satan. He's got these just hugely mutually exclusive categories to help them understand the teaching in here and where they're at here. So this room or up north, there's no way that the auditoriums that we're in, the venues that we're in, can be at the same time both pitch dark and brightly lit. Those are mutually exclusive. Can't happen at the same time. And yet we have the uncanny ability to say, well, no, no, actually I know how to walk with God who is light and sometimes I kind of get in the shadows. And so we'll say things like, well, yeah, I know I'm having an affair, but, but I love God. I, I read the word, I pray. Yeah, I, I, I know, I have these racist thoughts, I, I know that, but, but I love God. And I, and I teach kids to love God. Yeah, I, I know I cheat to get good grades, but man, I love God. And you know what, I serve the poor you know, every now and then, I fast. Yeah, I, I know I've been on the internet too much looking at things I ought not. But you know what? I, I, I love God. I'm, I'm here in church. I love singing the songs. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know I struggle with this anger thing and, and I lose it way too often. But man, I, I love God. And you know, I still give him a lot of my money. John says you can't walk with God who is light. You can't be in a close mutual relationship and at the same time be walking in darkness. Now I know you want me to qualify it. There's something in me that wants to qualify it. But let's just let it sit there. I can't be walking with God who is light and at the same time, be walking in darkness. I remember so well in grades 6, 7, and 8, when there was this huge battle going on in my own heart about who I was going to serve. Was I going to serve God, or basically was I going to serve me? And I remember at the end of 8th grade, uh, God just kind of stopped me in my tracks and he said, and I didn't hear it, but it was like it was clear as clear could be. Mark, you think you've been jumping over the fence and living on both sides of the fence because that's how I thought I was doing it. Like a lot of my life, I felt always kind of buttoned up and good. That was the good side of the fence. And then, yeah, I did jump over it and I'd lose my way. You think you've been living on both sides of the fence. You haven't. 
You've been on the wrong side this whole time because you've confused ritual, religious practices with a relationship with me. The false teachers tore down that divide. And if we're honest, we do that. We confuse things we do for God with walking with God. Walking in the light is walking in obedience. Walking in the light is walking in truth. What's the truth? Verse 8 through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Probably the most famous verse in 1 John, right? 1 John 1, 9. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Now, I know there are people, even in this day, who believe they achieve moral perfection. I just haven't met too many of those people. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verse 8. Can we all say we're good? And if you're not good on verse 8, um, we'll talk to you afterwards. All right. Verse 9. This is a great verse. If we confess our sin. What does confession require? Well, it, it requires truthfulness. I mean, true confession is agreeing with God what he already knows about what we've done that was diverging from who he is and what he's called us to, where we've moved out of the light. We've lost our way. It requires truth. But there's something else it requires. It's the same thing that is required when you find yourself in conflict relationally and you've wronged and been wronged and you have to come to this place of owning it and saying, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And it's hard. Why is it hard? I think there's a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is because we're proud. Because we're scared. We don't understand God's mercy. We're, we're, we're wondering if people are going to use that against us. Is that going to be a sign of weakness? And man, I am never going to get to the other side of that. And so we hedge it. And we may get to the place as, all right, I'll own up. You first. And then I'll throw in my part. I love talking to a friend this past week. And we were just talking about, <laughs> we were talking about how, you know, here we are, a couple guys about the same stage of life. And when we were younger, we thought we were going to have it all together about this time in our life. And how God was still shaping us and sharpening us and making us more like Christ and how that's hard. How it's easy to want to just protect ourselves. It's easy not to want to go to those places. And I loved what he talked about of just being honest before God and others of how freeing that has been in his own journey. We lie. We lie. If we say we have no sin, Ah, and we would say, ah, I'm good on eight. Man, I know. I know I'm a sinner. Well, so then it drives us to verse nine. So how are we doing with this whole thing called confession? 
what, what did we last confess? I mean, how many times do you think we broke ranks with God in the last day, in the last week, in the last month, in the last year since we were born? How many times? I know I didn't sin. But they're apparently, we're not connecting it. Somehow we're deluding ourselves into thinking that we're humble walking with God, though we really don't have any regular pattern of confession. So John talks to his friends, to that young woman who was confused. And he wants them and he wants us to be sure that if we have Jesus, the God-man, a relationship with Jesus through faith, a relationship that is marked by a walk with God, where we're in step with him, where we're walking in truth and we own up to the times that we're not in humility confessing that that we have the stuff that brings surety to our life I think I lose my way I think I'm more inclined to grab the checklist and so like right now this year I'm going through eat this book it's on my phone what is, what is that, Mark? Is that a check today? Or is that I get to walk with God today? This is the God of the universe who made you, who made me. He knows everything about us, everything that's quirky, everything that's broken. And he loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son, that we could have a relationship with him, that we could walk through life with him. By the grace of God, may we center our lives on Jesus and find that he is enough. Let's pray. Lord, we remember the apostle who said, I want to know Christ. And we remember that knowing you is life. And so, Lord, blow up the categories of these just facades, of these things that, that, that aren't real, these things that are actually dead. Bring us the things of faith, your spirit, life in Christ that bring joy and fullness and life, not just for eternity, but for today. Help us to understand that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. Forgive us for looking for more. Forgive us for thinking that Jesus is one of many. Forgive us for thinking that we're humble when confession is never a part of our thinking. Oh, God. We bless you for our son, your son, who is our hope. And we hang on to him. And we would do life with him and for him. 
We pray these things in Christ's name.